to God. Hello and welcome again to my kitchen. No cooking this week either, but I'm going to show you some of my recipe books. This one, you can see, is very old and I've used it a lot. Published in 1970, but I don't find it so useful now because it uses the old imperial measures, pints, ounces and pounds. And the oven temperature is in degrees Fahrenheit. What about this one? This is a very fascinating book, but I've hardly used it at all because it calls for some ingredients that we just can't get in Australia, such as chihuahua cheese, epizote leaves, and grasshoppers. Well, what's all this got to do with the Old Testament law and ethics? I can hear you asking. Um, well, recipes are sets of instructions and instructions you have to follow usually fairly strictly to avoid potential disaster, especially if you're making a cake. Some people might think of biblical ethics as like a recipe, a set of recipes that you have to follow quite strictly. Now, maybe you've never thought of the Bible as a recipe book. But it was common when I was younger to be told that the Bible is the maker's instructions, uh, an instruction manual for life, like a car manual. You might have heard that too. I can see the point of this analogy. God is our creator, so he knows better than we do how we work and how our lives work well. But there are at least three problems with this way of looking at things. First, Rules or instructions make up only a part of the Bible. It's not all about rules. There are sections of rules, like the section of the Mosaic Law that our reading this morning comes from. But these always occur in the context of the story and really only make sense in that context. In that way, this, the Bible is more like this book than a conventional recipe book. There is the story of a journey along the Camino and some recipes scattered throughout. But the rules in the Mosaic Law are like this. They're part of the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses. We are no longer under that covenant and we are under the new covenant. We're in a different part of the story. So we can't assume that all these rules apply to us, if any. The second problem with seeing the Bible as an instruction manual or an ethical recipe book is that ethics is about much more than rules. Yes, there are rules, or better, principles, to be followed. Rules are concrete and specific for particular circumstances. Principles are more general. The rules are applications of the principles. So, a general principle would be safety on the road, which itself derives from the even broader principle of respect for human life. And that principle is then applied to what we call road rules. But these rules vary from place to place and time to time, though the underlying principle is the same. 
One of my favorite recipe books is this one. It has lots of recipes for curries, but begins with an explanation of the philosophy and principles of curry making. An explanation of why and how certain ingredients are combined. If you understand the principles, you have freedom to adapt the recipes to suit the ingredients you have. Much of the Bible's ethical teaching is contained in broad principles. For example, the principle of respect for human life that comes from humanity being made in the image of God. Or the principle of the equality of all people that comes from all humanity being made in the image of God. Or the principles of faithfulness and of justice that derive from the character of God as a faithful and just God. Actually, there's even more to ethics than principles. There's also wisdom and there is character. Questions of what sort of people God wants us to be and what kind of community best reflects God's vision for human flourishing. But back to the rules or the recipes. The third problem with thinking of biblical ethics as following rules is that these rules were given in a time and place very different to our own. The historical and cultural gap is very wide, even wider than in the case of trying to follow recipes with old-fashioned measures or hard-to-obtain ingredients. When the passage from Exodus 21 was read, did you hear an echo of Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz? Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. This is a world where fathers sell their daughters into slavery, where anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death, and where you are in danger of being gored to death by your neighbor's bull. What are we to make of these rules? I've said that they are part of the Mosaic Covenant, a covenant that is no longer binding on us. So can we just ignore them? as outdated and irrelevant? Well, no, we cannot. The New Testament tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if these laws are not binding on us now, how can they still be the word of God to us what can we learn from them? I'm going to focus on the laws in this section related to slavery because they are perhaps the most problematic for us, but also the most helpful in drawing out for us how we might use Old Testament law in our ethical reflection today. And really, we do have a problem with these laws. How can we reconcile that they condone slavery with the fact that God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, or with the fact that slavery is an offence to our basic ideas about justice and freedom and human dignity, ideas that themselves have their basis in biblical teaching. Forms of slavery are still practised today in some parts of the world and are abhorrent. Sex trafficking, constricted child soldiers, debt slavery, sweatshops. 
The acceptance of slavery in these passages leads to two different problems. It leads some to condemn the Bible as condoning evil, and it led others to claim that slavery was acceptable, even endorsed by the Bible. This is what some 18th and 19th century evangelicals in Britain and America argued when defending slave labour in their sugar and cotton plantations. So how do we understand slavery in Israel? The NIV doesn't use the word slave, but rather servant. But the NRSV and other versions use the word slave. The League of Nations in 1926 defined slavery as the status or condition of a person over whom any or all of the powers attaching to the right of ownership are exercised. By that definition, what this passage is talking about are slaves. They can be bought and sold. And verse 21 explicitly says, the slave is their property. Masters had the right to beat them with no punishment, as long as the beating wasn't fatal. And if a bull fatally gored a slave and the owner was negligent, the punishment for the owner was not death, as it would be if anyone else had been killed, but a fine paid to the slave's master. The master had to be compensated for the loss of his property. On the other hand, the NIV has good reasons to use the word servant instead of slave, because slavery in Israel was not as harsh as that practiced in the surrounding nations. And this very passage, to a certain extent, softens and humanizes the practice. To understand why that's so, we need to understand why an Israelite might find themselves a slave. We noted before the huge historical and cultural gap between their society and our own. Most people were farmers. If their crops failed, they and their family might starve. They might then borrow money, but if they couldn't repay it, what could they do then? There was no social security. In such cases, the law allowed them to sell themselves to a fellow Israelite to work for them. Or if someone was a thief, they had to pay back as much as five times what they stole. And if they couldn't, they had to be sold as a slave as a way to pay off the debt. So slavery in Israel could be seen as a form of bonded labour, an alternative to desperate poverty and to prison. Kidnapping people in order to enslave them, as happened in the 18th century, was explicitly forbidden, as we see in verse 16. And this kind of slavery did not have to be permanent. As we read, when you buy a Hebrew servant or slave, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. According to verses 26 and 27, cruelty on the part of the owner resulted in <coughs> immediate freedom for the slave. And though the servants and slaves were regarded as property for the duration of their service, they were not just property. They were also treated as persons. If a slave died from being beaten, the owner was to be punished. 
and a bull that gored a slave to death had to be killed. Slaves in Israel also had some rights. They enjoyed Sabbath rest along with the rest of the household. And if they're injured by their master, they had to be set free. And so their debt cancelled. In Deuteronomy, we see that runaway slaves did not have to be returned to their master. Instead, they were to be offered a home in the community. Nevertheless, verses 7 to 11, providing for fathers to sell their daughters might seem especially troubling. But again, this is an alternative to crippling debt. And we see that the intention is that she become a wife of her new owner or of his son. If not, she could not be sold on to someone else but had to be returned to her own family. Nor could she be discarded or poorly treated after her marriage or she would have to be released. So this could be seen as a form of arranged marriage that provided for financial security for a woman from an impoverished family. It's not the way we do things, but it might be seen as making the best of a bad situation. In fact, that might be the way to see all these laws. There are still a number of problems with them, like the treatment of slaves who weren't Israelites, most of whom would have been prisoners of war, and most of whom would have been women and children. They did not have the same protections as Hebrew slaves did. So an obvious question is why God doesn't just command Israel to abolish slavery altogether? It's always dangerous to try and second guess God. But one helpful idea is that of accommodation. God accommodates his communication with us to the realities of our world, our time in history and our fallen human nature. Israel's identity was profoundly shaped by God, but it was not created from scratch as a perfect or ideal community. It would not have stayed that way for very long anyway. Jesus talked about Moses' law on divorce as being because of the hardness of people's hearts. Slavery was universally accepted at the time God made his covenant with Israel. It was an alternative to prison. Prisons, as we know them, didn't exist then. And a more humane one, since a person was given the dignity of working alongside other members of the household. It was also an alternative to crushing debt and poverty, possibly starvation. Slaves were housed, clothed and fed. God doesn't necessarily overturn all our flawed social institutions and which of them are not flawed, but works for justice within them, as we are too. So slavery is assumed and tolerated, but also moderated and humanised. The underlying principle is that all humans are made in the image of God. There is no assumption as there was in the cotton fields of the American South or the sugar plantations of the Caribbean that slaves belonged to an inferior race. And the Exodus story itself is the story of a God who frees people from slavery. God reminds Israel of that at the very beginning of the covenant he makes with them, the start of the Ten Commandments. 
and throughout the Old Testament they are urged to remember that God is the God who brought them out of slavery in Egypt. If we understand God's commands as based in God's character, then his identity as the one who gives justice to the oppressed and is kind to the poor must be reflected in the community of his people. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word, which is inspired by you. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. May it teach, rebuke, correct and train us in righteousness. May your word be a lamp for our feet and a light on our path. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.